Two Geeks in a Marketing Podcast, episode 87, the one about simplicity of strategy, digital experiences, QR code generators, and the film The Mummy. Let's get on with the show. Welcome everyone to another episode of Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast and as always we're here to keep you up to date with the latest news, tech, content and wisdom from the world of marketing. As always, I'm joined by a man who is on a mission to demystify digital marketing. He's the host of the Content Marketing Video Podcast Series. He's also back in the UK. Please welcome <laughs> Monsieur Pascal Fintoni. Well, thank you very much. And once again, the highlight of my week spending time with a man who's also on the mission to keep marketing simple. The voice of the Marketing Finance Podcast and the author of Cats, Mats and Marketing Plans. I give you Monsieur Roger Edwards. Oh, Pascal, it's so good to have you back in the UK, even though so I'm still in Edinburgh and you're still in the UK. There's something comforting to know that Monsieur Fintoni is in the UK. Why are you back, Pascal? I'm back in Durham for conferences times. You know, this oh. is the time of year where you and I brave weather conditions and sometimes uh, transport issues. So uh, I have become an international man of mystery. And I must confess, when I arrived at the conference center in Durham, I could feel I was being treated differently. I had come all the way from France as far as the organizers um, were concerned, even though I've been doing work in, in Durham for a part of 30 years now. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's interesting. Interesting. They think you've escaped. You've escaped. Why have you come back? Why have you come back? Pascal, this is episode 87. It's a good one, as they say, where I come from. No, they don't. But uh, <laughs> I wanted to quickly mention um, film marketing straight away. Mm. We have chosen a beauty. But interestingly, we're going to be talking about The Mummy from 1999. And we'll be looking at how marketing has been used to resolve some major, major sales challenges. Now, as a staggering coincidence, Trisha and I watched this film less than a month ago, so I must have had precognizance that you were going to choose <laughs> this film for film marketing, so I can't wait to talk about it. It's such, such a great film. And that bald guy, what's he called? Arnold Vossler. Yeah, uh. fabulous, fabulous. Anyway, enough about that. Let's get on with the rest of the show. We've got a few sections to get through, and as always, we will start with In the News. Right. As the rising cost of living is changing consumer behavior, Tesco is doubling down on providing consumers with a wide range of products to prevent losing market share to Aldi and Lidl. Britain will replace the European Union's General Data Protection Regulation, which we know as GDPR, with a new business and consumer-friendly data privacy regime. The new Digital Culture, Media and Sports Secretary, Michelle Donlan, has pledged this. Well, we shall see. Well, it would seem that Elon Musk has reversed his decision to back out of his $44 billion deal to buy Twitter, and that's all the company is prepared to go ahead with the purchase. London-based luxury ice cream brand Hackney Gelato is set to increase its marketing investment following a £600,000 crowdfunding campaign. Goodness. Well, as mortgage rates continue to climb, the interest rate on a standard two-year fixed rate mortgage has recently risen past 6% for the first time since 2008. Wow, that's, that's quite serious. Climate change activists have told the BBC they are baffled by Coca-Cola's sponsorship of COP27. More than 8,000 activists have now signed a petition which calls the infiltration of corporations into COP sickening. 
Mm, the third and fourth largest mobile network providers, Vodafone and Three, are in discussion about merging their businesses, which could potentially create the largest operator in the UK with 27 million customers. And Deliveroo has partnered with Morrisons to open its first physical store, allowing customers to order groceries via digital kiosks or the Deliveroo app for collection straight away. Now, just think about that last one, Pascal. Deliveroo has always been about delivery, hasn't it? And I just don't understand why they need a physical store, whether it's partnered with Morrison's or not. Yeah, it's, it's unclear because, I mean, I can understand Morrison's wanted to partner up with Deliveroo to get their products out to, to homes as people maybe want to travel less or are working longer hours and so on. But the fact that it would be, it would seem a Deliveroo branded physical mm. store, uh, is it that it's going to be smaller, perhaps in you know, more almost like those um, Tesco Metro type things, where you know it's not going to be a Morrison's that has th those very localized little stores, but more Deliveroo, and will the physical stores be used as a um, semi warehouse, and so be like a dispatch center? Interesting. Yeah, it is interesting, isn't it? I mean, again, you, you associate Deliveroo with delivery, and it just makes you wonder whether they're actually moving away from what made them successful in the first place to effectively become a shop themselves. It just it just seems that they haven't really got their strategy nailed there. Now, willing to be uh, willing to be proved wrong, so we shall we shall see. Now, I can remember so much talk about the implementation of GDPR, Pascal. <laughs> I mean, can you remember how much hassle that caused us as we as we moved up to the, the cutoff date? I mean, people made a living out of GDPR, didn't they? There was GDPR consultants popping up everywhere. There were people writing courses about how to prepare for GDPR. And, and of course, as a business, and, and you're probably the same as me, I have to register with the information commissioner and pay a fee each year to prove that I'm compliant with GDPR. So on the one hand, it thinks we went through all of that pain to actually sign up to it mm. and, and, and let's face it, it it might be painful but at least it has introduced a massive layer of protection for everybody and now it just seems well it, it, is this just a brexit thing oh we don't want to be in anything to do with europe so we're going to create our own uh and it says business and consumer friendly data privacy regime you know some people might imply that that means that they'll make it a lot less uh, safe and a lot more lax and actually exposes to potential harm now i'm not accusing the government of actually doing that but i just do wonder you know we went through all the pain to sign up to gdpr should we just not carry on using that well more importantly you'll have to if you export to the eu well, exactly, in any case exactly you know, the same way you know reported the pressure that rightly so facebook google and all the others have to have their data centers in the territories where the data is, is from so they have to have a uk data center for uk data uh, and vice versa i mean i read just enough about this business and consumer friendly now people are saying on the on the plus side or what the reason we can be optimistic is because michelle donnellan is from a business and marketing background she understands mm. all of that and what they're saying is that they're going to remove some of the red tape for businesses and they're going to add additional features for privacy and and tracking and so on for, for for the consumer what i will say is that on balance there isn't that much red tape linked with gdpr and on balance there is an enormous amount of privacy already um in place it's just that sometimes we, we just don't know about it so i, I 
I'm torn towards this idea of headline and attention grabbing uh, statements as opposed to uh, a good solution. I'm actually more interested, and you and I have reported about it in in the news section about the online safety bill, which is yeah. taking too long. People say, yeah. yeah, no, that's that's been dragging on for for years, hasn't it? Mm. And. The last one I want to talk about today, Pascal, is this whole climate change thing. Yeah. And people are baffled by Coca-Cola sponsoring COP27. Now, on the one hand, you can think, well, it does seem a bit strange, doesn't it? I mean, Coca-Cola are probably one of the world's biggest producers of plastic bottles. I, I also think they're probably one of the world's biggest producers of glass bottles as well, which aren't quite as bad for the environment. But do you think that's a bit of a contradiction or are they genuinely going into it with green credentials? Do you know that's the second time that we are reporting a PR kind of mishap? It was to do with uh, football tournaments, if you remember, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. a very famous footballer had shoved to one side the Coca-Cola bottles before being filmed giving an interview and actually brandished a, um, a bottle of water instead. And you know, I kind of reported, you know, yeah, actually, you can see it, you know, um, literally, if there was ever a good time to use the expression, read the room. And I think it's the same here, which is that if there was, um, I mean, you want sponsors for COP27, but there's going to be some better suited brands to do so, unless indeed, you know, they have made great strides in, in being part of the movement, but mm. then they are not communicated um, so well. And, 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 you know, it's the same with um, any kind of big event, you know, all you have is a logo on a flag or on the banner. And sometimes I wonder whether there's going to be a better way to be a sponsor, I suspect. Yeah, I mean, I would like to think it's more than a PR stunt. But again, as is always the case, time will tell. Now, I have to resist the urge, Pascal, to talk about Elon Musk. I, I think bet. we've given Elon Musk enough exposure in this part of the show in the past. But I did want to finish off by just asking this question about Hackney Gelato. Do you know what the difference between gelato and ice cream is? I do, but... Only because I've eaten lots of gelato when I was in France. <laughs> it's very, very different. So am I right in thinking about gelato? It's a lot more cream being used. And literally, in Italy, they have it on, in buns, like, you know, um, and that kind of things. Yeah, I think it probably is. But it's sort of like ice cream sounds like it's got cream in it. Gelato mm. sounds like it's got gel in it mm. so it, it, it's, it's just one of those things that always confused me is that you've got ice cream and you've got gelato and i've never really known the difference i guess i could have googled it but i just thought you might have known thank you pascal <laughs> we're going to ask our viewers and listeners can you explain to you know roger and i simply the difference between gelato and ice cream i know there's a huge difference in terms of taste and you know the way you can consume it but in terms of how it's made i'm not sure yeah, interesting, interesting. Thank you so much for your insights on the news as always, Pascal. Shall we move on to our content spotlights? Well, in this part of the show, Pascal and I bring to the table a piece of content. It could be a video, it could be a blog, it could be an audio segment. So Pascal, what's in your spotlight this week? Oh, this week it's all about webinars and online experiences. And I want to bring back to the content spotlight 
our good friends from On24. Now, people who have been listening to the show for a while knows that we are a big fans of Mark Bornstein, the Vice President of Marketing and Chief Webinerd on On24. <laughs> because ultimately, On24, with their many kind of best practices webinars and their articles and so on, have allowed you and I to comment on the evolution of live video, of hybrid events, and so on and so forth. But this one is an article written by Jade Shojahi, and she's written five new digital experiences you can't live without. And again, looking at their data, looking at you know the years and years of being a solution provider for those who want to provide uh, a create, forgive me, an online experience, Jay was able to come up with five elements that can really help a participant feel, feel more involved. And she's got two extras as well for speakers. So let me just get, get straight into the five new digital experiences. So number one, closed captioning the idea of subtitles as the presenter is delivering you know their their story so it could be practical you know people are not listening with the sound on it could be for accessibility but also more and more platform including on 24 are including auto translation you and i did the test with microsoft and many other solutions you could have an international audience and if they want to listen to the english but also have support with their native language there's more and more of that uh, happening online so no Number one being closed captioning. Number two, I'm a big fan of the kind of painless and seamless registration. There's still far too many platforms that makes registration, uh, you know, lengthy. And and also, if you are a regular attendee, you know, they should be looking at automation. So they're looking at this idea of ask just enough, and in fact, use the webinar itself to capture more information. Don't make the registration too difficult. Um, number three, which is something that has been interesting for me to observe on the On24 platform, content recommendations whilst you are delivering the presentation. So this is Roger, this, the idea of uh, you have the, the dashboard that you can imagine from the many times you've been online, but within that you have also access through hyperlinks to an ebook or to an article. And many people would think, well, this is wrong because you're distracting the audience away from the main delivery. I find that to be actually a massive, massive bonus where maybe at the very start or the very end, you can actually be given added value from the organizers themselves. And so have a think about that. Number four, breakout sessions. You know, they are available. People don't use them sufficiently for peer-to-peer -peer networking and deeper connections as well with the speakers. And then number five, personalized and customized calls to action. So basically, no longer can you have a one size fits all, give the audience options, you know, they can do many things after the, as a result of attending the webinar, but can you also personalize based on their wants and needs and their profile. So these are the top five new features to look to introduce this year and beyond. And then two more for the speakers themselves, use of virtual backgrounds to either add to the experience or maybe to con concur with your delivery. You know, maybe you don't want to be using slides, but you could be using virtual backgrounds to kind of add the keywords or the images that you want to comment on. And then number two for the speakers, one that I've been using more and more now are reactions, essentially emojis, the thumbs up, the applause, the smiley face or the unhappy face to do some kind of improvised voting um, moments as well are being used more and more. So not a very long article to read at all, Roger. 
the one that you could use almost as a little checklist, use the article to go back to your team or you know, even self-reflect on, am I using closed captioning or can I investigate the use of? What about our registration? Is it as simple as possible? Can we recommend actually already existing content, podcasts, ebooks, articles? What about breakout sessions? Could I ultimately maybe do almost like a VIP Q&A room after the webinar, just between me and a handful of loyal customers? And what about the calls to action? Have I thought about them sufficiently? Can I make them more varied? This is really interesting, Pascal, and I know you are the master of webinars. Uh, you do a lot of webinars, but one thing I was, I was just interested in asking you is that we are supposedly well out of the pandemic now, and, and I'm reading more and more about live events, in-person events coming back and, you know, just becoming like it was pre-pandemic before everything changed. Have you noticed that despite all of this new tech that you can use to improve the webinar experience, are we starting to move away from online again and back into the real life uh, event or, or are webinars still as strong as they were? So they are still as strong as they were. And the feedback has been fascinating for me. What I hear from participants, and I'm you know, grateful to my very loyal audience, is webinars, perfect for learning, live events, perfect for networking. Mm. And they mm. are now... Um, participants are making a big distinction between the two, which didn't exist in the past. You know, you would say a in-person event and webinar, it was the same delivery with the same kind of experience. So webinars now uh, are claiming their spot for skills development, mm -hmm. as well as all other ways you could be sales demo and, and customer service and after sales care. But when people are going to take the trouble to, to jump in a car, travel, park, walk in a cold and go to to a building and so on what they want is inspiration and build a network and almost you could you could say more around lead generation so it's been interesting and what i will say is certainly when the um there was a feeling that we could return to the in-person event webinars were almost stopped and they went all in on in-person events and now there's more of a balance between the two and that's really interesting. That's really interesting. So, Pascal, you know that I'm massively into simplicity. Yes. It's always been one of my great big bugbears is how complicated everything is from products to processes to customer service, whatever it is. And I have been a champion for simplicity for as long as I can remember, simplicity in marketing especially. Now, I found an article which I want to talk about this week, which I could have written myself. In fact, if I'd written an article about simplicity, this would have been it almost word for word. It's that good. So the title of the article is, Here's Why You Should Embrace Simplicity as a Strategy and Three Ways to Do It. It's by Dave Garrett, and it's in entrepreneur magazine now again it starts off with a chat about steve jobs i think steve jobs was once quoted as saying something like simple is harder than complex and and there's even a quote from my book cats mats and marketing plans that says the reason why there is so much complexity out there is because simple is harder to do and that's why people end up with complicated things because they can't i'm not going to say can't be bothered but it's too hard to put the extra work in to make things simple and i th think there's also a correlation between the size of businesses i think a small company that's just started might actually start off quite simple it might start off with simple processes simple products simple marketing but as it gets bigger as it becomes more successful as it employs more people as it expands in terms of territories 
things start getting more complicated. Maybe they become more siloed, more processes get layered on top of other processes. And before you know it, it's just becoming very complicated, bureaucratic, etc. And And I just find the whole thing fascinating. And, and, and it is very difficult. It is so difficult. But I've always thought that the rewards for making things simple must far outweigh that extra effort that it takes. But then, Pascal, I sit and I think, you know, I've been doing some work, as I often do, with financial services companies, and I just think, this is this is horrible. Why is it so complicated? In this day and age, you've not moved on. And then we hear about Web3, don't we? And and all of this uh, interoperability and, and the, all the different iterations and gobbledygook that surrounds the metaverse. And I'm just thinking the next iteration of Web3 is going to become horribly complicated and the more complicated you make things the more you alienate the end customer and, and that can't be a good thing so this article by dave garrett just absolutely puts it into simple terms as it would have to in an article about simplicity so it starts by identifying the four main areas why things become co complicated and the first one i'm not even sure i'm going to be able to pronounce this is called structural mitosis it's the steady accretion um, uh, um, accumulation of structural changes or new organizational layers that make businesses unwieldy and difficult to manage and, and, and that happens doesn't it when businesses get bigger you bring people in from outside they don't share your values or they haven't learned your values and they start to just make things a little bit more complicated I've worked for many companies where the second problem occurs, product proliferation. You're obsessed with introducing new versions of the products or tweaks to existing products. And what you don't do is you don't withdraw old products. You just keep adding to the existing ones. And before you know it, your portfolio is too unwieldy and too complicated. The third one, process evolution again you know one business buys another business with completely different computer systems that they have to try and merge together and then that amalgamated business gets bought by another business and they then try to amalgamate all of their processes together and what you end up with is just a horrible sort of mutation of processes which are just not customer friendly and finally the fourth problem is managerial habits you know people just not moving with the times or people becoming complacent letting things slip in you know it's easier to just add a process rather than try to overhaul the whole process and it a lot of the time it comes down to those managerial habits so what um, dave then does is go on to come up with his three strategic goals for simplicity and again you know i, I could have written this number one set clear qualitative sorry set clear quantitative goals now a lot of the time complexity filters in because you aren't clear of what your end game is what your end goal is if you do have a goal and you know where you're going then you can define the parameters and that is very key to stopping complexity from effectively creeping up on you the second one, and this probably would take some time, is to examine your people, processes, and technology. I think it was called the Golden Triangle. This goes back to an article written in the 1960s. But look at your people. You know, make sure that everybody is on the same page. They all share those goals that we've already talked about. They understand 
where the boundaries are. They're not allowed to create new processes. They're not allowed to create new silos. They're all heading in the same direction. Same with processes. If you do have to amalgamate the processes of two businesses together, don't just stick them on top of each other and try and make do. It may mean that you have to redefine the whole thing from scratch. And the technology as well. If you buy a business with 20-year-old computer systems, is it worth the investment to upgrade those 20-year-old computer systems to something more modern rather than just trying to patchwork it together with virtual duct tape you know these are really difficult things but that's why simple is hard because complex sometimes is just easier to ignore and carry on with and number three i think again right back to the very beginning which i always come to slow down this thing this takes time it's not easy but you've got to listen to the customer so again, think about it. You're merging two processes together. The thought process is more likely to be, we've got process A and process B. As a business, what can we do to add the two together? No, 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 no. Go and ask your customer first what they want from the process, what they want from the product, and use that as the starting point to bring your processes together, to bring your products together. Because it's the customer that ultimately is going to judge your product. It's going to be the customer that judges your service. So to me, Pascal, this is one of the simplest but best articles I've read on simplicity. So thank <laughs> you so much, uh, Dave Garrett from uh, Entrepreneur Magazine. And what do you think? It's been absolutely fascinating to listen to you uh, give the account of the article, but also your reaction, because in the first part of the article and your summary, I could see my career flashing by in the <laughs> eyes, because all yeah. those challenges and problems I seem to, in the kind of nearly 30 years in marketing now, I seem to have encountered them either as a junior marketing officer all the way to a senior member of the management team and so on. And then you've got, of course, the solution, which are just um, so simple. And I'm so delighted that you ended on the um, you know customer uh, element because it's always forgotten and I would argue that the article that I chose again without talking to you from Jed Shojahi who is the um, you know kind of marketing senior manager at On24 all this observation that she's come and the list she's come up with is based on what is right for the customer as well which is what you know we and I talk about and Simplicity is fascinating because it is a result of, on occasion, you know, going through complex ways which you could do something and almost like a good video editor taking things out <laughs> where, yeah. where possible. Where I sometimes struggle is that I am not convinced that all businesses have a culture that will promote simplicity. So if I take you back to, because it's happened, my early uh, career, I would have preferred certainly to pr produce a three-page marketing strategy, but I am absolutely convinced that had I done so, the reaction was, you did not put enough effort into this, mm -hmm. Pascal. Mm -hmm. Give me a 10-page strategy. Now, that's you know some years ago. I want to think, but I don't have the, the evidence, and I would love to listen to hear from my viewers and listeners. Have we gone? Have we moved on? Have we applying what you know, Roger is talking about, which is, actually your leader or even you know your your kind of customer we much prefer a simpler um you know product or a simpler proposal even though you can then share your working outs you know behind the scenes or are they going to pay the invoice more happily because the proposal is complex or the the results you know the marketing strategy is complex 
That's fascinating, Pascal. And I bet, and I know for a fact, that there are still leaders out there who would prefer a deck of 250 slides for a strategy rather than maybe a deck of 10 slides because they feel that there is more value in mm. the complex document when, in fact, it could be harder to put together the 10-slide deck if you think about it. So, wow, really enjoyed talking about that. One of my favourite subjects, as you know. And I think that we should move on now and talk about marketing, tech and apps. So, Pascal, what have you got for us on the tech front this week? It's about QR codes, Roger. Oh, now, QR codes kill cats, you know. <laughs> Indeed. Do you remember many years ago now, we can use that term because, of course, we are into our third year of production. You and I, <laughs> in the in the news section, quoted some data from a research company saying QR codes are back and here to stay. And two events I want to kind of uh, use to preface, you know, my recommendations in terms of how you can create your own QR codes. About um, two weeks ago now, I attended a networking event in France, which was all about exporting. And I was there to share the message about I could I was in a position to help French companies export to the UK by taking care of their online marketing strategy. And I wanted to point them to a very specific section of my website, which was which had content in French and explaining how I could do that. And I kind of wrestled with it until literally I remembered, well, I could use a QR code. They could scan the QR code on the business card that I just produced you know, with all French details, and they'd be taken directly to that web, to that section of the website and ignoring uh, all, all the rest. But it so happens that I wasn't the only one. The QR codes were used by all the presenters at the end of their presentations. The weather refreshing desk, you could do voting, could do all sorts of things. So I think when used wisely and sparingly, you know, that's important. And tactically, I think they have a great role to play in adding to the experience. So a couple of options for people to consider. Uh, Adobe Express that you mentioned before on mm. marketing tech and apps, I've just created a uh, feature within their dashboard for a QR code called simply the QR code generator. So you go on Adobe Express free um, account and you create the code you uh, fix if you like a hyperlink to either your um, web page or to a email subscription code, anything like this, and off you go. And that's been used, you know, a lot by people who want to keep it simple. My recommendation would be to go on any of your platform, whether you're using Shopify, WordPress, or another, because they are all introducing QR code generation as value adds. So don't, you know. It reinvent the wheel if you don't have to. But what if you want to do something more specific? Maybe you want to be more targeted. Maybe you want to make the um, scanning of the QR code something that adds a um, more of a visual experience. Then Bitly, B-I-T-L-Y, that I've used to date for creating shorter links to destinations, I've also created a QR code generator, but just forgot to tell people about it. <laughs> so... <laughs> You know, I'm pleased to kind of mention it and leave the hyperlinks into the show notes, but I just opened the web page because they, they can do so much. So with a QR code, someone's going to scan it, you know, with their mobile phones. Of course, you can take them to a URL web page, but with Bitly, you can also create a online business card that will automatically add your details onto their mobile phones to be, to be contacted by phone or by email. You can link it to a automated SMS message 
But here's the thing, you can also link it to an MP3 file. So you could actually have people scanning the code and get a message from you that wow. you have pre-recorded. You can link into an app, um, you can link into images, you can link it to your social media accounts and so on. You can also use it for people to connect to their Wi-Fi network at a venue. So for me, the reason why I want to mention Bitly was also a reminder that on one hand, you could keep it simple and link into a web page, but I've got a feeling that the possibility are as endless as your own imagination. Yeah, it's interesting. We recently went on holiday for the first time since before the pandemic and the hotel that we stayed in were really big on using your mobiles to re read the menus and the restaurants and that sort of thing. And every part of the hotel on the tables, they had these little cubes and the cubes effectively had a QR code engraved into the cube. They actually look quite nice. And, and obviously if you scan the QR code in the uh, barefoot restaurant, then you would get the menu from the barefoot restaurant <laughs> will pop up on your phone. And obviously, if you went into one of the other restaurants, the QR code was slightly different. What I did find a bit weird, though, was that the, these links, if I went away and actually tried to type in the word barefoot restaurant, it wouldn't come up with the URL as it would do like in the history that you usually get on your browser. So if you hadn't got one of those QR code tubes handy i couldn't work out how to actually get into the app to browse it so i found myself actually i'm saying to say to trisha i'm just gonna walk up to the uh, barefoot restaurant so i can scan the qr code to get into the app and once i'm in i can i can move around it but i we couldn't find any way of getting in so i think qr codes are absolutely spot on now we're starting to learn how to use them but sometimes you know the attention to detail might not be absolutely perfect now, what about you then? What have you yeah. got for us this week? Okay, now this is interesting because uh, I, I've often been quite interested in some of these apps that help you with your writing, help you with writing prompts. I've done writing prompts before, you know, inspiration for writing, and, and also other apps that help you to refine your writing. So we've, we've had things like Grammarly and um, Hemingway app to help you with grammar and that sort of thing. Now, I accidentally came across another couple of things recently. And the reason I came across them, Pascal, is because I saw somebody post about one of these on, on LinkedIn. Now, I'm not going to name the guy, but basically he said, I've seen my uh, um, interactions on LinkedIn explode since I've been using this thing called TypeShare. So I thought, oh, that's interesting. And he says, yeah, TypeShare's got loads of templates for, for, um, for using different sorts of social media posts across LinkedIn. It, could also, it also works on Instagram and TikTok and all of those others. And these are tailor-made to make the algorithm work, work in your favor. So I then went to TypeShare and I thought, ah, nice, nice website set out really nicely. Uh, obviously, different levels of payment plans. You know, you've got a basic one where you get access to a couple of templates to let you play around with it. But it actually looked quite interesting. But then, interestingly enough, I clicked on the LinkedIn section, and that's when you start being able to download template packs. And I noticed that the template pack that you can download were all written by this guy who was on LinkedIn saying to people how he was using TypeShare to maximize his reach and everything like that. And I thought, oh, okay. So you've just now created this sort of virtual circle where you're 
made everybody come across to TypeShare to see how good it is, but actually it's your own templates that you're trying to sell using TypeShare, which I thought was a little bit interesting and maybe a little bit disappointing. But TypeShare is worth having a look at despite that. I thought there's some quite interesting things on there. I'm not sure I would pay for the full thing, but it does actually trigger some interesting ideas. And as a result of looking at TypeShare, I also came across this other one, and I love the word, the name of this. It's called Hype Fury. Now, on the face of it, it's a little bit like some of those existing scheduling apps that you can get where it'll schedule a tweet or it'll schedule a LinkedIn post and this, that, and the other. And I used to use one of those a long time ago. I can't remember. It was called Edgar or something like that. Um and in the end, I decided I don't like scheduling on social media. It sort of goes against the whole point to me of social media. Social media should be sort of spontaneous and interactive. So I stopped using these scheduling tools. But I have to say, Hype Fury looks really quite detailed, and it looks like it's got a lot in it. So the reason I'm pointing it out is... A, it's probably worth having a look at if that's the sort of thing you're into, if you want to have a look at scheduling. But really a question for people watching and listening, do you still use scheduling software, scheduling apps for your social media? And if so, let us know. I'd be intrigued to know whether it actually helps with your engagement and whether it does boost your post and maybe plays the algorithm a little bit more or indeed do you find that you're being penalized for using scheduling software so I'm not sure pascal what do you think about scheduling i've moved away myself mm-hmm. um but you're right i would say yeah good 10 years ago maybe even five years ago they were part of the deliberation they were part of the kit that you would want to build for yourself in because you wanted to kind of almost claim i'm being efficient i'm being strategic i'm thinking ahead and so on but then the result for me, for my customers who came on the training course, that they said, but the thing is, if I put it on the schedule, I forget about it. And then mm. two, three days later, I discovered that someone asked a question or reacted positively, and I didn't get a chance to thank them in a timely fashion. So they've said, we, we tend to either do half and half or not at all. Mm. Uh, I don't think there's anyone that is doing the scheduler like a uh, 100% of the time with, with their social media post. And for me, I don't use them anymore. Uh, and the reason has been on, on occasion, the, the way it, it looks, you know, the post looks in the end uh, is slightly off. Mm-hmm. And first impression being so incredibly important in marketing, that's also one being one of the reasons I've moved away from them. Indeed. Excellent. Well, as always, some interesting tech to talk about there. And we always say this on the show, don't we, Pascal, that we owe a great debt to the people in the past who invented things to give us the technology that we have today in the present. So this is the part of the show where we set the controls of the TARDIS, we fire up the flux capacitor, we do some jiggly, jiggery pokery, that timey-wiminess, and we fly back to this week in history. And in 1915, Ford Motor Company under Henry Ford manufactures its one millionth automobile at the River Rouge plant in Detroit. In 1940, The Great Dictator is released in the United States. Charlie Chaplin wrote, directed, produced, scored and starred in his first true sound film, playing both the fascist fascist dictator and the Jewish barber. And in 1988, hailed by Steve Jobs as a computer five years ahead of its time, the NEXT is released. 
1990, the Internet Movie Database, also known as IMDB, is launched by movie fanatic and computer programmer Col Needham from Bristol, who posted his movie listing software to a Usenet film discussion group called rec.arts.movies, and the rest is literally movie history. It is, and can we say a big, big thank you to Col Needham, because thanks to you, our life is made a bit easier when we do a film marketing segment. <laughs> Absolutely, and if, 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 if we're ever looking on Netflix for a film to watch or on Amazon Prime for a film to watch, if something comes up and I've never heard of it, we always go to IMDb first just to check out the rating. Whether the rating is actually you know, an accurate reflection of the film, we still always check it out. So, Pascal, the Ford cars. Mm. I mean, you can have any colour you like as long as it's black. Do you know what's interesting about the the legacy of the Ford company under Henry Ford? It's about business management, it's about the marketing, it's about design. I mean, you know, it really, really is quite something. But the reason why I wanted to kind of uh, spend a bit of time on this news item is that whilst they manufactured the one millionth car in 1915, they were all so busy uh, trying to uh, open new factories and, and get it done, but they missed it. They missed the milestone, so much so that they actually waited till the 10 millionth car to do a big PR push. And I just wanted to kind of um, reflect on that, which is a bit of a warning for all of us, which is you've got to be careful where possible to almost have something in place to capture and celebrate the milestones so that you have more kind of marketing, um, you know, mites and reasons to be doing that, that making the headlines. So the story and, and people, you know, have recorded saying that they missed it. I mean, it's historically, it's factually correct, but they all just got on with opening new plants and building cars and so on and completely missed it until somebody, maybe some historian, kind of looked at it and went, hang on a minute, you know, you, you, this is quite, I mean, one million cars. You know, mm -hmm. it's like, mm -hmm. I, I, I can't even imagine if they were to be all lined up, you know, how much distance they would cover in, in kind of uh, across the land. Um, so I just think it's uh, both reasonably amusing, but also a warning that, you know, we can all be so busy creating content, delivering services, building businesses and so on, and maybe we need to sit down and predict those milestones and get them in a diary in some way, shape, or form. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I remember getting to episode 100 of Rog Vlog and not <laughs> celebrating it because I was immediately thinking about episode 101. I wanted to talk very briefly about the computer that came out in 1988 that Steve Jobs hailed as being five years ahead of its time. Now, it's called the Next Computer, or it's actually spelt capital N-E, then capital X-T. So I did wonder whether it was supposed to be pronounced the N-E-X-T mm -hmm. or the N-E-X-T or something like that. But the interesting thing is that I've never heard of it, which is quite interesting. But when I did a bit of research about it, I found out two fascinating pieces of information. The first is that Tim Berners-Lee, who we all know as the inventor of the world wide web the inventor of the internet actually used some of the coding from the next computer or the next computer to fashion that original iteration of the internet and secondly some of the operating system uh, functionality and process that was in that next computer now forms the basis of the modern apple ios operating system to this day so not only was that 
next computer five years ahead of its time, according to Steve Jobs. But it was also, and just like we always say in this part of the show, it was one of those pivotal moments that actually spawned, you can argue, the entire World Wide Web and an operating system that at least half the population of the world use on their mobile devices. That's just incredible. And, and I think that's why I love, you know, this segment of the show, because we need to have a sense of history to have a sense of direction. And I mean, 1988 feels like, uh, rightly so, a long, long time ago. Uh, but you had people like Steve Jobs and many others who were looking at, you know, something that they could predict w would have some use in, in, in the future. And I think very often what they had to do and I'm talking about this example here, but there would be countless other examples globally across all continents, is to have the confidence to create something that maybe only a minority would be using, mm -hmm. but because that was a stepping stone to the next one and the next one again. Absolutely right. It's It really always brings it home to you. What a debt we owe those pioneers from the past. But Pascal, let's come straight straight back up to date. Let's come straight back up to date. It's time now for our creator shout outs. Okay, Pascal, so who are you giving a shout out to this week? Oh, listen, this week I'm super excited to tell you about three individuals who are the co-host of the Near Memo podcast series, Mike Rubenthal, David Meme, and Greg Sterling. And, well, their podcast found me. It was actually a YouTube recommendations. And to be honest with you, I got myself listening to them almost all day long. I was working actually back at the business center in France and they have this lovely format of almost feel like reviewing the news or the recent announcements from the world of digital. If I just quickly read to you the kind of summary, the statement from the podcast. So the near memo is a weekly conversation about search, social and commerce. What happened? why it matters and the implication for local businesses and national brands. So Mike, David and Greg are part of this collective of professionals from the world of local digital marketing for a company called Nia Media. And like you and I, I suppose they've had conversations and they launched their podcast about 18 months ago now. And they went from Nia Media to Nia Memo, you know, that's part of the, the language of the site. And those conversations are just simply riveting. Half an hour, they have about 10 minutes each. They, they have this kind of three-way um, kind of um, screen split and every so often they, they go into speaker mode. And what I love about the conversation, I thought it's really clever. You would expect that from local SEO and social experts. I find the title the, the, um, of the, those podcast episode and video uh, version as well to be quite evocative and very intriguing. So you have things like um, Google Quick Read, Useful or Gen Z Bone. Why <laughs> are Google Posts rejected and why Nextdoor needs local SEO? That's the title of one episode so you feel very it's very very inviting to me um another one the demise of local audiologist content bots for local news and facebook shutters neighborhoods and you have this intriguing effect and then they have 10 minutes each to give a summary not dissimilar to what we do in the news and then the other two kind of co-host um react they're also introducing now interviews with um experts but what i like about the show they clearly are specialist in local marketing and by extension local uh, SEO, local social media and, and so on. 
And it got me thinking that it is not something that we do enough in the UK. You know, we tend to talk about marketing to almost go nationwide or to be global. That's been kind of, you know, particularly the, the drive by our local government. But I, I'm thinking, you know, the, the, I've got some customers whose aspiration is to, forgive me, dominate Yorkshire online conversation or Canadarum or Scotland. They don't want to go beyond. And my reflection is that I find it fascinating that in the US, they talk about local marketing a lot more. Um, they, indeed, you know, some of the co-hosts here, they have their own kind of individual uh, initiatives and programs looking at supporting local businesses in, in that way. But I just love the tone. I just love the way it flows very, very naturally because it's a conversation. And I just think that it was absolute pleasure to discover them purely via the YouTube recommendations, but I'm now definitely a regular listener. So that's the Near Memo podcast, Mike Rubenthal, David Meem, and Greg Sterling. Well, I'm definitely going to check that one out, Pascal, because I'm still on the lookout for some new podcasts, <laughs> having recently done a cull of ones that I've been listening to for years and years and years. Now, my shout-out this week is probably the second time this person has got a shout-out on the show, but Mark Masters, who runs a company called We Are The Media. In fact, We Are The Media is a conference based down south very successful conference and mark is well known as a as a superstar content creator but i noticed on linkedin last week he posted to say that it was the ninth anniversary of him launching his we are the media newsletter and i just thought that was worth a shout out mm. because now he admitted in his post he says you know nine years ago today i launched a newsletter and it was rubbish <laughs> you know there was the admission uh, but over the nine years he's built up a following he's built up a business he's become known as a solid consistent content creator and you know people love mark's newsletter i mean it's got so much variety you know it's got spotlights a little bit like we have you know he allows people to work take over part of the um there's video parts to it and and links to events etc etc it's, it's definitely one of those newsletters which feels weighty and there's always a lot of news in it now in the day and age where Every day in LinkedIn, you get invited to subscribe to a million newsletters, most of which I just reject because I don't even know of the people. Mark has a newsletter, which is definitely worth signing up to. But nine years, that is absolute and utter consistency. And I think that consistency, consistency should be shouted out on Two Geeks in a Marketing Podcast. Excellent. Thank you very much, Roger. Now, Pascal... It's time. You chose it. We're going to talk about a film called The Mummy. Here we go with film marketing. Well, this week in film marketing, we're going back to 1999. The Mummy, a horror film, an adventure film, just a good rip-roaring adventure film. Pascal, let's watch the trailer. Where did you get this? on a dig down in Thebes. Jonathan, I think you found something. There is an ancient legend of a place known as the City of the Dead. We call it the doorway to hell. Where the earliest pharaohs were said to have hidden the wealth of Egypt. Are we going into battle? There's something out there. Something underneath that sand. 
they came to uncover its secrets. Mummies, my good son. This is where they made the mummies. They sought to unlock its treasure. And then there was light. Oh, boy. What they did... Oh, my God. It does exist. I think this may be the Book of the Dead. ...was unleash a force unlike any the world has ever known. You must not read from the book! You have unleashed a creature that we have feared for more than 3,000 years. He will regenerate and no longer be the undead. We are in serious trouble. This work! What the occasion calls for it? Trust me! It calls for it! Universal Pictures invites you. His powers are growing. Run! This just keeps getting better and better. To experience the adventure. It appears he's already chosen his human sacrifice. That will live forever. If he turns me into a mummy, you're the first one I'm coming after. Go! Oh, what a film. Do you know, oh, God, what I mean. a film. I, I rem- We went to see this at the cinema and we absolutely just wanted to see it again straight away. It just had everything. You know, it was, it was, it was fun. It was action-packed. You know, quite a bit of um, horror in there as well. A perfect package, and one of one of the best sort of adventure horror films ever made. I would su- suggest. Oh, absolutely! I remember to this day being at the cinema. We uh, went in Newcastle, and everyone in theatre was laughing at the same time, cheering, you know, wincing when it was horrible. We'll talk about those, um, you know, Beatles in a moment. Um, oh. My memory of, you know, the music by Jerry Goldsmith, the, the landscape. And can I just say, there has to be something that is now part of our psyche as a global population about Egypt in the 1930s. I mean, we, we've talked about death on the Nile actually mm. uh, some weeks mm. ago. But at the moment you take us there, as I did with Raiders and, and a few other things, uh, I, I accept it. Whatever you're going to present to me, I accept it. And this movie is truly thrilling. And I would say we watch it at least once a year, easily. Yeah, I mean, again, great cast. Oh, yes. Brendan Fraser, Rachel Weiss, John Hanna. You know, most people associate John Hanna with Four Weddings and a Funeral and possibly mm-hmm. uh, the earlier versions of the Inspector Rebus TV series. Arnold Vosloo, who we, uh, we, we mentioned earlier. What a scary individual, totally bald individual mm. as well. Not, not, you, not what you would expect from the mummy. I mean, I had vis- uh, uh, visions from my childhood of what, Watching mummy films where the mummy was just always wrapped in in um, in the sort of bindings, uh, whereas this guy was just a big big bald guy who was really quite scary. And and I actually Rachel Weisz 
is very funny in this film. Mm. I think her comic timing. There's one bit where she says something like, uh, I know what you're thinking. What's a place like me doing in a girl like you or, or whatever it was. And, and yeah. she also mentioned there's that really creepy guy as well. And she says, you know, horrible little men like you always get their comeuppance. And, and sure, of, sure of enough, course it, it he does. does. <laughs> but you're right. You yeah. know, and I loved do you know, so what, what is interesting about uh, the, the Mummy, um, it's a Universal Studios property. And the studio who could say invented the summer blockbuster, when I did the research about the marketing, they were claiming that they wanted to relaunch the summer blockbuster mm. phenomenon in 1999. So clearly there, there were some views that in the 90s, the summer blockbusters or movies lost their way. And this was yeah. a movie too. So there is a... A kinship with, with Jaws, uh, a bit of Star Wars in there as well, because this was a difficult and grueling shoot, particularly when they went to, to Morocco. And I think there's a link, of course, to Raiders of the Lost Ark. Mm. But it's a movie of its own. So nobody's saying it's a second-rate Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's, it's a second-rate this. But I thought it was fascinating that that was their commitment. And we'll talk about the marketing because that had a bearing in that. But for me, it was just this idea of being introduced to the adventurer. You had the mm. librarian. You had the gambler. You know, John Hanna who plays a superb role. And then multiple faceted villains, you know, Emotep, you know, Anuxanamun and so on. But what was interesting, the casting was difficult because the vast majority of the people they eventually accepted to be on the film were against it because A, they didn't know whether they wanted to do horror. And then when they realized what it was, well, is it going to be a bit weird and a bit, you know, like corny and embarrassing? And the kinship with Star Wars is there for me because remember Harrison Ford many times and Mark Hamill reported they were filming Star Wars and they were like, this is going to be terrible. I mean, is it meant to be funny? Is it meant to be scary? Is it meant to be actiony? We don't know what we're doing here. And this could be a career ender for all of us, <laughs> uh, which I think is absolutely fascinating. And of course, the other link is with Star Wars is that the mummy was launched in the same year as the Phantom Menace. Yes. So let's use that as a segue for the mm. marketing. So, mm. so for me, what has been interesting about looking at the marketing, marketing became a solution to a problem or a challenge. Okay. So 1999 was the year of the Phantom Menace, the most anticipated return to a galaxy far, far away, the return to George Lucas behind the lens, if I'm not mistaken. He directed the first one. And that created the challenge because, of course, if you want to be the summer blockbuster that is going to rekindle the interest in you know summer movie going, the problem that you have is that if your movie is released more or less at the same time as The Phantom Menace, you're not going to get a look in whatsoever. So what they had to do was to move the kind of approved and signed off release date of the 21st of May 1999 to the 7th of May. 1999 because the phantom menace was being released on the 19th of may and you can just imagine how tricky that is from a marketing point of view from a booking of the screenings point of view from everything else but having maybe to change maybe even the narration of the trailers and so on and so forth in 1999 so the movie was released in on the 7th of may instead of 21st i thought that was maybe a very cheeky move they did have a premiere on the 4th of may star wars day do you think that was done on purpose? Ooh, did we did we even call May the 4th 
May the fourth be with you back then. I don't know, but actually it was mm. an interesting coincidence whether that was already a place. Um, but then what they did, which I thought was interesting, you know, talk a lot about in a movie being released almost on the same day globally at the same time. I sometimes wonder if it's to avoid video piracy or it's just, you know, good <laughs> marketing. But what they did here was it was essentially a summer 1999 rollout. So mm. 7th of May was the US, 25th of June was the UK, a month later in July was France. And the movie was rolled out, you know, almost territory by territory until the last one was in September in New Zealand. So you had essentially from May to September, people talked about the mummy around the world in, in different ways. And it was ultimately a very wise decision because this was a number one movie uh, early May. And once Phantom Menace was released, of course, it went on to second, third, fourth and, and so on and so forth. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I'm thinking back now because obviously, like everybody in the world, I was absolutely <laughs> gagging to see The Phantom Menace. But I think that if I had recorded the number of times we've watched The Mummy compared to how many times we've watched The Phantom Menace, I know that The Mummy would win. Yeah, I would agree. Because for me, is is that reassurance of watching movies again, because you know about Rick O'Connell, you know about Evelyn, you know about Imhotep, you know, and Benny and Ardeth Bay and all those characters. But I look forward to be once again, you know, all these years later, completely surprised and, and amazed by the landscape, by this, the, the, some of the sets, particularly at the end, you know, you have the big showdown against the mummies and so on. And the special effects at the time, I mean, some of it has not aged well, but because you had that wonderful combination of action, comedy and horror, you kind of forgive it. And listen, you know, if we can forgive Star Wars from 1977, you know, <laughs> we can forgive the mummy from 99. So you mm. described that as the first marketing challenge, Pascal. Mm. Uh, uh, but you mentioned that there were at least three marketing challenges, and the second one is all about the actual title of yes. the film, The Mummy. So su surprisingly, documented, you know, the, the very people working on the marketing of The Mummy um, are quoted to say that the, the title presented them with a challenge to, to say when they were doing test audiences. And can I just quickly open a bracket and close it? I'd love to be invited to those test screening. I don't know what you have to do. I don't know where you have to go, Roger. Um, Perhaps people know, but you know, I hear about those test screenings that sometimes have actually quite a, an impact on the end result, all the way to cancelling shows like mm -hmm. Bad Girls. But how do they do them? Anyway, they did a test audience, <laughs> and the audience left completely confused because they were convinced that they were about to see a horror movie. Uh, and, and sometimes even worse, they were saying, I wasn't really keen because this was to me a remake of the very old horror movie from back in, in, in the 40s and, and 50s. So the temptation could have been to change the title to make it clearer. So the marketing president at the time, Mark Schmugger, recall saying, we chose to actually re-educate the audience and redefine the myth of the film rather than changing the title. That's really interesting because sitting here having seen that film so many times i couldn't think of what else you would have called it mm. um you know egypt revenge or the terror of the tombs or who knows what it would be but the mummy is i mean it's the mummy wasn't it that it was a remake yes maybe i'm old enough to remember the original films anyway and, and therefore i wasn't the, the people who were confused in the test screenings but uh, it had to be the mummy so i'm glad that they took the decision to restyle the marketing and just educate people that this isn't just an out and out horror film it's an action adventure horror comedy which is obviously a lot more wide 
wider um, uh, spread appeal. Yeah, although that argument with the benefit of um, not just hindsight, but foresight doesn't stack up when you look at their recent effort with Tom Cruise, because <laughs> they, they went back to creating a horror film. But we are in 1999. Yeah. And the third challenge that was being um, expressed and documented by the filmmakers was, I suppose, uh, linking to the title, they really, really wanted to promote and sell an action adventure comedy mm -hmm. with a bit mm -hmm. of horror but more importantly for all ages and all audiences because we're back to the summer blockbuster phenomenon and, and of course you and i know that that's one of the hardest thing you can do in marketing to have actually uh, no audi all audiences as your target audience means you don't know how to to go about it so they had to work super hard on their marketing pack which we're going to describe you know the, the posters the trailers and the, the tv and radio spots but the one thing that they had to do is to commit to the one big investment to essentially counteract the lack of interest and appetite clearly that they could sense and of course as reported time and time again on the, the film marketing segment they went for the tv spot during the super bowl uh, event which we know of course is a very if not the the most expensive advertising slot in the in the world isn't it every year that is prime time very expensive and they paid what was it 1.6 million dollars for that spot? Oh, and yeah, you know, and and so so people then became very critical. Uh, so what I'm going to mention, you can't have it both ways. You can't <laughs> not have somebody trying to market their movie, particularly if they have evidence that it's not going to work, and they already had to to, to kind of uh, tackle the issue of the Phantom Menace. And now you're blaming them for doing a successful <laughs> marketing campaign. You can't have it both ways. But what has been interesting is, of course, this movie is so loved that people look at it, you know, five years, ten years, twenty years later, and to this day they are promoting it. But you know, doing the kind of um, 20th anniversary review of the, the movie, the director, Stephen Summers, who becomes synonymous to Adventure Romp, said, you know, that before that 30-second Super Bowl spot, nobody was interested. Mm. After the Super Bowl spot, everybody wanted to see the mummy. Yeah, absolutely. And and Pascal, tell me about the posters. Because I mean you you made this uh this this um illusion earlier on. We've spoken about Death on the Nile. We've spoken mm. about the Indiana Jones films. There does seem to be, over the history of movies, a sort of colour palette, doesn't there? <laughs> and the iconogra iconography of, of, of Egypt, the pyramids, obviously, and how the pyramids often get built into the typefaces or, or whatever it might be. I, I just think, again, you've got that, that gorgeous golden colour palette going mm. on with these posters. Yeah, it's a combination of um, the, the glow, the sand, and the sharp edges of the pyramid. You know, that's what they've been they've been using, and they also then with the teaser poster. So what you had is the lower third. You had the pyramid. You know, the, the sand. You know, is it sunrise? Is it sunset? It's always difficult to say. You had the mummy, and they play to the symmetry of the M U double M Y. So the the first M is kind of um, a little bigger. This is where maybe it's opening a portal uh, to you know either time and space for the mummy to be to be reawakened and of course with the teaser poster that the kind of the lower two-thirds is a rendition of the mummy's kind of face stroke mask using a sand effect and and of course when you go and see the film uh, all this is revealed and as part of the reveal there was a strap line which i will say probably didn't help the marketing uh, fully because when you have things like the sands will rise the heavens will part the power will be unleashed I just don't know whether 
that's uh, the best way to really get people excited about this movie and to convey, of course, you know, that this is a action comedy, not a horror film. What do you think? Yeah, I, I, you know, going back to what we were saying earlier about complexity versus simplicity, that's actually quite a complicated mm. strapline, isn't it? You've got a lot to take in there. You know, I, I would have, I would have more gone along with something like he's been unleashed or something like that or <laughs> yeah. unleashed from the sands of time or something like that would have probably worked better but hey it's what they decided to go with indeed and you know to stephen Sommers and all everybody else who worked on the mummy this is not a criticism it's mm. just you know 23 odd years later we can just go oh, i wonder and then from the teaser poster where it was all about the mummy of course the characters are being introduced in what would be for me kind of photo montage so that takes me back in my days of marketing of doing things where you layer um, you know different types of photography so we have um, the characters of of rick and evelyn and then we have in the background the pyramids we have the army uh, charging and so on and so forth so more more intrigue more kind of uh, suggesting this is going to be a big big adventure yarn but i also wanted to kind of put to you the um, is it a fourth marketing challenge is that at the time um, territories had different rules with regard to what you could show on a poster and mm. the presence or or the absence of seemingly violence or nudity and so on so in some territories you have the character rick o'connell holding a, a torch mm. you know, suggesting that they are investigating the pyramid and the corridors and then some posters is holding a, a rifle because in some parts you can show the weapon and that kind of thing so uh, this is fascinating about the challenges of promoting a property in different different territories and different cultures of course and what i also liked about the tv spots that you've you've um, come up with for this pascal again it reminded me of death on the nile because effectively there was a tv tv spot for each of the characters wasn't there almost you've got john Hanna, you've got brendan fraser rachel etc each with their own dedicated TV spot. Now again, Death on the Nile had a cast of characters, an ensemble cast of characters, and I seem to remember that each of them had a poster. They probably didn't have a TV spot, but again, it just shows how important it is to invest a little bit of your marketing into giving people an insight into the people, the characters that they're going to be interacting with. Yeah, and those TV spots, there was four that had been uh, gathered by some kind of YouTube historian. So thank you very much for, for the effort. <laughs> and they each had, you're right, a different focus. Was it on the on the mummy? Was it on Rick? Was it on Evelyn? And if we had time, we could study, as we've done with um, in time, you know, the construct of those TV spots. But clearly, the first 15 seconds, you have the voiceover narrations, and then the final 15 seconds, a montage of the action, the scenery, uh, the exploration, the pyramid, and, and everything you would want from that that type of uh, that type of movie. Um, so, so listen, you know, for something that um, was released 23 years ago now, that that wanted to reclaim the, the summer blockbuster spot, I, I think that they achieved their goal. But I think they would have been even surprised to realize that all those years later, people are still talking about the movie over and over again. I mean, the number of podcasts, of videos, of magazines, both, let's say, trade magazines and public magazines that are covering the, the, the mummy is incredible. I mean, 20th um, anniversary, sorry, you have magazine like Entertainment Weekly and Premiere and Total Film. There was an article I came across called Snakes, Sandstorm and Strangulation, <laughs> The Making of 1999's The Mummy. 
And this is making reference to how tough the shoot was, akin to the shoot of Jaws or even Star Wars. The strangulation, I thought this was almost like urban legend, but actually in the recent interview given for Yahoo News, Brandon Fraser did confirm that he actually got uh, strangulated in the scene where um, he's obviously allegedly being killed you know, with um, the rope because they timed it so badly that he was dangling with his oh. rope around his neck for far too long and actually lost consciousness and had to be revived by the by the medics my goodness i hadn't realized that that's mm. uh, that's quite scary isn't it so so this carries on you know the presence of the mummy you and i've said you know we watch it so so many times you had the the i had the um the vhs cassette box which looked beautiful between the mummy and the mummy returned you had the dvd you had the blu-ray uh, released in 2012 as part of the 100th anniversary of celebration of universal studios but i was absolutely surprised to realize that as this year on the 12th of november the time of recording the british museum is organizing a special event and as well as talking about you know uh, Egypt and and you know, the research, they are also doing a special screening of the mummy. Wow, that's just that's just incredible, isn't it? Again, it just goes to show it's become legend. And interesting that the British Museum is actually hosting a special event about a fictional film. Yeah. To me, it shows its impact. It shows mm -hmm. probably um, some of the, you know, it's linked with um, historical event and, and some truth into it. But to create an experience where, you know, the event of the British Museum has a, uh, a presentation from a historian adventurer and then to close and to wrap it up because they know that this is, you know, what you do, you leave people smiling. They're going to have a well of a time watching the mummy within the environment of the British Museum. I think it's wonderful. Yeah. And two things that I'd just like to finish on, Pascal. First of all, you mentioned the more recent Tom Cruise mummy film, mm -hmm. uh, which I never think about. I can't, re I can't even recall the plot. <laughs> this is the one that sticks in the mind and often gets yeah. rewatched, as opposed to that one. And also, you were, you did mention the Beatles earlier on, so I'm going to mention the Beatles to finish with. And that creepy guy that Rachel Weiss said would get his comeuppance. Well, he did get his comeuppance because he yes. got eaten by those awful, awfully scary scarab beetles, which absolutely, the, the, the sound effect as they, as thousands of them scurry across the floor. So that is just one of the most, you know, hairs on the back of the neck moments of the film to me was just, Oh, those scarab so, beetles. Horrible. So well, so well realized. Um, uh. I mean, that's one of my favorite moments. My second favorite moment, um, I will confess, is near the end where the character of Rick O'Connell is fighting against the revived mummified guard and soldiers. Mm -hmm. Because actually, at the time, he was doing it to, to nothing. He, he learned the movement taught to him by the stone coordinator by heart. And it looks so uh, real. Forgive me. You know, uh, eventually they added the, the CGI uh, mummies, oddly from the um, ILM division from mm -hmm. George Lucas. So you know, we were talking about the competition between Phantom Menace and uh, and the Mummy, but actually the special effects were done by the division that also worked on the Phantom Menace. So they're all friends, really, after all. But that 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 sequence where he's fighting those mummies is just so cleverly pulled together that I was blown away and still am to this day. Pascal, as always, you've chosen a remarkable film. And as always, we could carry on talking about it for 
at least another hour, I would think. But we haven't got time to do that because the show needs to come to an end. Thank you, everybody, so much for listening to, to watching the latest episode, episode 87 of Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast. As always, it's been an absolute pleasure bringing you all the content that we've done this week. If you've got any comments on the show, do please leave a comment on the YouTube channel or Pascal. Listeners, viewers can talk to us on SpeakPipe, can't oh, they? Oh, we'd love to hear some friendly voices on speakpipe.com forward slash two geeks and a marketing podcast. So thank you so much again. And remember, until next time, go out there and make sure that your marketing is done right. I was Roger Edwards and he was Pascal Fintoni. Thank you.